Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined as always by the managing editor. Andrea Lopez Villafania. What's up, Andy? Hey, Lewis. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And reporter, Jacob McQuinney. What's up, Jacob? Nothing much. Coming up on the show this week, PolitiFest was a success. We have pulled some big moments out of the day-long series of discussions. The event's focus was housing and water, but we heard some real talk about people struggling to find shelter. Even the Attorney General was unsure exactly what cities are allowed to do to clean up homeless encampments. We'll go through some notable moments as the debate about the city's biggest crisis continues. The Marine Corps even had to weigh in on homelessness last week. In short, they are not going to solve the problem for San Diego. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. So the guys on sports radio were making fun of me the other day, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which... Is this a rare thing? It comes up every once in a while. Uh Yeah, so you're like like a recurring character on like a shock shock show? Yeah, (laughs) sort (laughs) of. Yeah, Um, you know, Ben Woods on 97.3. I had tweeted something and, you know, you shouldn't tweet when you're ornery at like 9 p.m. Oh, are you you talking about like your wet blanket celebration tweet? Yeah, okay. okay. So one of the things that drives me nuts is Major League Baseball, when they, uh, whenever a team wins... Either they wins the right to go to the playoffs, wins one of the rounds of the playoffs or whatever. They always have the exact same stage celebration in the locker rooms where they're, everything's covered in plastic. They put out beer and they, they give them goggles and then they spray the beer at each other and like, and, you know, drink it down. It's just like, it's just like this, this just, you know, frenzy of excitement, but beer just spraying everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like I have a, a just a reaction to it. I don't understand. I, I remember as a kid how it sort of developed as like a more spontaneous thing. And then it just became like this thing you do after you win something significant in mm. baseball. And there was a particularly like ridiculous one where Max Scherzer from the Rangers is just spraying and dousing uh, Austin Hedges, the catcher. And, and they're just like, it's just this, this, chaotic moment of just like this staged celebration and i tweeted like come on (laughs) you you won the quarterfinal of a tournament you didn't win the right to go to the finals you didn't it's just the quarterfinal of a tournament and and i I, it also just drives me nuts that it's so staged like the goggle they hand out goggles part of the point of spraying alcohol is that you're just you're just you know you don't care you're just spraying it everybody's getting in your eyes it's just part of life because it's just so fun you're you're just dying of excitement 
you got to get it all out. And here they are like protecting themselves with a little goggle. It drives me nuts. <laughs> and so I tweeted that and everybody accused me of being like the fun police and stuff. And they, they had some fun with it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, and, they, as they should. Yeah. And so just to be clear. It became you can, like prime content for them though. You, you can... <laughs> You can sell. I, I I endorse the celebration. I don't endorse the staged, like, performative thing, right? So, yeah. so what what do you think when I say the phrase "I'm going to Disneyland"? What does that inspire in you? Well, that's fine. That's just like a because it's capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the spraying of the Budweiser, by the way, is purely like sponsored <laughs> and staged. Stuff. Sure, but they're doing what one should do with Budweiser, which is pour it on the ground, right? <laughs> Or Great, in their Jacob. Faces, now they're not going to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get the buzz. Anywhere but other than your mouth is I a good place say, for Budweiser to be. I will say, that's the way I felt after PolitiFest. Like, we should have been spraying each other. <laughs> what? Dousing each other. <laughs> I was wondering where you were taking us. Yeah, this, yeah. This was, and, uh, and that was not walking through place. a dark forest. I didn't know <laughs> what was going to come out on the other side. I was just I very was relieved to have that behind us and I'm sure you all were too. Yes. Okay, so Scott, maybe it would have been better if you did something spontaneous and not staged and like there's a little pool there in the back. You should have jumped in. But I leave your phone in your pocket, you know, no equivalent of a goggles. What if like the what if the Attorney General Rob Bonta jumped in after and it just became a whole thing. That See, cool. that that would have been great content. I think you missed an opportunity. <laughs> Next uh, year. <laughs> well, we made it. Even uh, others might have said, like, gosh, you guys literally just finished an event. You don't need to go crazy. To me, it felt like a great celebration and a great moment. Great job. Uh, we've got a lot to go through for this um, week's show. We're going to go through some moments that were of interest. I would highly encourage you to go and check out all of the different audio and video that we have posted from the event. There are a lot of moments that really stand out if you care about anything from the exact state of what we know about homelessness to um, the discussion about water. We're not even going to get into some of the water moments that were really interesting. All of that is at politifest.org. That's politifest.org. So let's start with this one. We're going to talk about the county supervisor debate, right? Their ballots are out. Mm -hmm. Did you get your ballots? Some people have already voted. Others, it's just waiting for them on the kitchen counters. Yeah, we don't have election days anymore. They're just the last day you can vote. Yes, which is November 7th. Okay, so the ballot is out. It has one question on it. Do you want to vote for Monica Montgomery Stepp? She's the current city council member at um, the city of San Diego, and she's running for the seat. She's a Democrat. Now, Amy Reichert. Republican. She helped lead and create the Reopen San Diego movement and organization during COVID. And she's a private investigator. And she is also running and she's an option on the ballot. And so they both came to PolitiFest. And it was really interesting. There were a couple of interesting moments. At one point, Monica Montgomery Stepp said that the enforcement of the camping ban that the mayor and and the majority of city council members, just the bare majority of city council members supported, uh, is being enforced in a criminal way on the streets. I'd like to hear more about what she was thinking with that. We'll get into some of the legal issues around that stuff in a minute, but there was also a pretty spicy moment. Yeah, and and there were other little moments here and there, but I think this one like really popped off. So. Um, they were having a discussion and randomly Amy introduces, um, you know, she wanted to talk about the race and how they promised, you know, how they would, you know, have a pretty smooth race and no mudslinging, no name calling. And so she turned to Monica and asked her um, about a campaign email that went out um, accusing Amy of several things. And she was, you know, saying, just please, uh, don't do that. And, um, we've got a clip on what she said. Exactly. You referred to me as anti-science science denier and an extremist in a fundraising email after you vowed publicly that you would never mudsling or name call. I have never done this in this campaign. And I just want to ask you from my heart, please don't do that. It it leaks down to everything publicly when we do that. 
And so I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, let's give Monica an opportunity to respond to that. <laughs> I think you should and if, answer the question. If, if you are going to name call, I just would like for you to point to actual examples. Monica, do you want to address the question? Sure, I will. <laughs> I actually don't think anything about that is, is not true. I think this strays from some of the issues that I said in the very beginning were extremely complex in a forum or debate that people came to hear, but I've been called a lot of things a police defender, which I have never done. Um, that was from your, your Twitter account. Never used um, and, and see, this is why I don't want to get into it because I, I, I can bring the receipts when there's time for that. You know, um, Amy, you were the head of one of the organizations that um, was was anti-vax. Um, and anti I, you know, I have a lot of family members. You know, it's interesting. I It's funny how like sometimes even being in the audience, which is fascinating and wonderful that our team here reproduces these, or no, republishes these conversations and makes them available on our website. Um, because I didn't catch that part where Monica said, I don't think nothing about that is not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it was, when I was in the audience, I thought she was saying that what Amy was true. saying was not true, that they didn't send out a mailer, not that what the mailer, or what the campaign email I think said. she's pretty clearly saying there that, what we said was true. Yeah. Not that it was a name calling. Yeah. But like in the moment, you know, I, I yeah. feel like I in the moment I she's heard differently. Like yeah. I thought she was saying something else, but now that we're replaying it, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but that is an interesting <laughs> thing. So uh, the anti-vax label obviously has has been something that she's uncomfortable wearing. She said, no, 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 no. I'm saying I'm anti-mandate forcing yeah. people to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I think that's probably fair if they if they really get to particulars about how they've described their opponents on this or their I'm sorry their pr priorities on on all the COVID vaccines and stuff like that. Yeah. But they also have a lot of people who are anti-vax in that world, right? Yeah. Who are who are very skeptical of the vaccines in in all kinds of different applications. Right. And then Amy shared not in that moment, but then she shared later that she had. Um, gotten the vaccine or had been vaccinated, received yeah. several vaccines. Um, yeah, it was. A, it, there was a couple of moments. They both they both were pretty skeptical of SB ten, the law that would allow up to ten units to be built on um, one parcel of land. The city of San Diego tried to implement it as one unit per thousand square feet of land that you have. Um, but it was not implemented in part because people like Monica and the mayor got a little bit scared of putting it forward, I think, mm -hmm. or, or at least just reluctant to put something like that forward based on the outcry from the neighborhood. So they also had a good exchange about the migrant issue. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of people obviously coming over pleading asylum. The border patrols dropping them off at, at transit stations. They often have places to go right away. But in the meantime, they're taking up some spots in temporary shelters. And the county is was on the verge and did eventually approve $3 million to keep the services available that were available for them over the next few months. And Monica was supportive of that. And Amy Riker was pretty hostile to it. That, there was an interesting kind of that, that part of the exchange was also interesting. At one point, Amy did, kind of compared it to taking food from your family and giving it to the family next door. Oh, yes. So I that remember everybody, that moment. So that everybody in the neighborhood thinks that you're a good parent, which was just a, a strange way to describe that, I felt. Yeah, that was a striking moment. And I think it's no scandalous thing to say that Amy Reichert has a real big challenge to get uh, out of this as as the winner of this seat. There's a it's a heavily democratic district. She's obviously made a lot of inroads. There haven't there hasn't been a massive influx of spending on her behalf mm -hmm. and independent groups don't seem to have decided that she has a, a chance if, even if they're pretty hostile to Monica Montgomery. People are already lining up to run for Monica Montgomery's seat uh, in the city council, assuming that she's going to vacate it in December when this is all said and done. But who knows what could happen? It is a special election, still small turnout. You never know if there's some sort of groundswell you're not aware of. But 
it is definitely a lift for Reichart and uh, and Monica Montgomery Step is already, I think, making plans to take it take the seat. Well, I think one of the best conversations at PolitiFest was Lisa Halverstadt's with Dr. Margot Cushell. She's the director of the University of California, San Francisco's Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. She's a, just a medical doctor as well. Now, this was the largest study of homeless individuals ever conducted. Almost 3,200 participants statewide. There were uh, hundreds of in-depth interviews and then just... They did a lot of work to make sure that the stuff that people said was true. They found themselves in all kinds of interesting moments where they're interviewing people who are about to get swept out of their encampment. They talked to, it, it was just an incredible study and, and, um, and now data source for what people who are homeless deal with, where they came from, where they got to be homeless. You know, I'd read the study, but, but hearing her talk about the methodology and all the work that went into it, the, the, the scope, the breadth really was, I mean, pretty, pretty breathtaking. It was a huge, huge undertaking where they went to communities all over the state and then interacting with, there was a really interesting moment I thought where she talked about how the researchers in the study needed to care for their own mental health because the stories they were hearing, the, the experiences that homeless folks were recounting wow. were, were so intense and vivid and, and at times mm-hmm. extremely traumatic. And so just the breadth and the scope of this was was something that 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 hearing her talk about it, it was really kind of uh, sunk in for me finally. Right. And at the very beginning, they addressed right away one of the biggest myths or claims about homelessness, which is that the people are mostly struggling from alcohol or drug addiction issues. And she addressed that with what the study showed. Among everyone in our sample, about a third used an illicit substance three times a week or more, and that was driven almost entirely actually by methamphetamines. So about, I think, 31 or 30, 31% or 33% used methamphetamines three times a week or more. Um, about equal numbers of people said that their substance use or alcohol use um, had gotten worse, stayed the same, or gotten better since this experience of homelessness, but that varied a lot by age. Among the younger folks, it was overwhelmingly that their substance use problems got worse after they became homeless. So as she points out, the, if, you're, if you're taking meth three times a week, you're probably taking it every day. And, and then that second point, I think, is so important and so interesting and one that we come back to a lot, which is all the people that she talked to, they said there was equal numbers who, who said they, they take or use drugs the same amount since they got homeless. Another group says they, they use it less, and another group says more. But she said among the young folks in the study, it was overwhelming that they use substances more. So I thought that was important. And then it brought the natural question, at least from Lisa, about, okay, well, what about all these laws and other things that are meant to like force people into treatment? And what do you think about some of these issues about treatment. And she, she pointed out that as a doctor, she knows that the best and most effective way or time to get somebody into treatment is when they want it. I think the most important findings we found was that amongst people who use drugs three or more times a week or drank heavily, 35% of them reported currently wanting and trying to get treatment that they had been unable to get. And I sort of think we need to put aside all of these conversations about forcing people into treatment and treat those folks first. When we drive that number down to zero, or I'll give you one or 2%, then maybe we can have a conversation, but we're just fooling ourselves. Why would we force people into treatment when it's very unlikely to work, when those are gonna use the treatment slots of all the people who desperately want treatment who we can't get them into? It's just political theater. So it gets to a lot of the things we've been reporting, and Lisa Halverstadt in particular has been reporting on our site about the availability of treatment beds. I think I don't think people talk enough about what we're talking about when we're talking about people who are using drugs like methamphetamines or opioids like fentanyl, right? If they're using fentanyl and you're saying to them they need to get off of those drugs, what you're saying is that they need to go through 
perhaps the most horrific and painful experience that they can imagine. One that they constantly avoid by taking the drug more, right? And that one that, that part of what's gotten them to the point that they're in is that they they must find another hit, another fix before that pain is endured. So to help people get out of that, to, to be able to withdraw from uh, an addiction like that, you have to have tremendous support. You have to be in a in a safe setting where you can use the bathroom and take care of things while you go through this. And those places aren't available. Lisa wrote just two weeks ago that uh, basically it was like a lottery. If you don't have good insurance, if you have um, uh, insurance through Medi-Cal, it's like winning the lottery to find one of these beds. So we had 1,300 people die of overdoses last year. Uh, so even if just a small portion of them wanted to get treatment, it would be truly a lottery for them to get it. While San Diegans, this is what she wrote, with private health insurance and financial means have more treatment options, the county has just 72 withdrawal management or detox beds for the nearly 1 million people in San Diego with Medi-Cal insurance, 72. So even if, let's say, 1,300 people died last year of overdoses, if even a tenth of them, 130 people, wanted to get treatment, they couldn't have gotten it. There were only beds for 72. There's only two beds she found within the city of San Diego, just two. 72 is smaller than one of my lecture classes at SDSU right now. I mean, that's a, just a shocking fact. I think there's a lot of people watching what's happening in the community right now, thinking mm -hmm. that all these people don't want help. They're addicted. They are lost souls. They're even worse than subhuman in some ways. They just do not think they deserve any sympathy at all because they're, they're in the situation they're at. But even if a small small, 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 small group of them wanted to get help right now. They could not get it. That it is literally like winning the lottery. And I think she brings up a great point. Like if we're going to, there's a, there's a new law, SB 43, just passed um, and signed by the governor that is now going to compel people who, or at least include people who are suffering from substance abuse disorders that they can now be compelled into conservatorships, the similar type of discussions that we're being ha that we're having about mental health issues and mm -hmm. care court, yeah. that you can, can you can um, compel them into care. But as she points out, like, why are we even thinking about that when the people who want care right now can't even get it, aren't even close to getting it? Yeah, it, because in addition to needing a place to, you know, withdraw, going through willingly putting yourself through that hellish experience of of an opioid withdrawal i mean that that requires a degree of of dedication to the experience that that is kind of beyond what anything i can imagine especially if you're homeless uh, same thing yeah. with meth right if you're going to get off of these things but you don't have anywhere to go you don't have access to bathrooms or just a safe place to be a safe dry place to be that's just a I, that's a big lift and then there are a lot of outpatient places there and where they hand out methadone and other things to help you with the pain to go through it. And that there is more plentiful services like that. But if you need to go through the full detox and, and withdrawal experience in a safe place, there's none. There's just none. And now we've got a new story coming out too. We She did a great job profiling a, uh, an organization that was trying to get some spots built. Yeah, so these are uh, substance use treatment providers, uh, three of the largest ones, Lisa spoke with them in the county, and um, one of them is McAllister, and they told her that in the last three years, they've looked at 44 sites, and now they've moved on to their 45th site, looking for a place where they can offer up more treatment beds, but it's like really complicated. There's like red tape they have to go through. This last site that they looked at was in Bankers Hill, and, you know, they've got some money from the county and the city to open up a place and offer new beds. Um, but there's lots of like really weird little complex things that they have to consider. So like one of them with this Bankers Hill property that they were looking at, um, everything seemed to be aligning just fine. But then they realized that there's only one way to get into this property. So that means that if you're a patient of theirs and maybe you're smoking a cigarette outside or, you know, whatever, 
other people who are coming into that little area for some, you know, one of the other businesses nearby could see you. And so they have to consider like their patient's confidentiality and like what that looks like. And there's only one way to get onto the property. So they had to scrap that. And now they're looking at a different one. So, um, you know, and then there's another organization that has a site that's ready to go, but they need a lot of money and they're asking the county for help. And it's just a super complex system. And it's so sad how all these providers are just like, we're doing the best that we can. And even like, that's not good enough. And people are suffering and people are dying and they're getting like hundreds of calls uh, from people desperate to get into treatment. Yeah, if they, if they have like 35 people and there's one bed available, they have to have this like crazy decision of like who deserves the chance for life. For that bed, yeah. Right? Like who deserves the chance to to get out of this? Mm-hmm. And, and out of 35 people or whatever, you're, you have to pick one. I'm feeling like this is driving me nuts because imagine if we treated this the same way we treated the pandemic. Because if you... Do you remember when they they started to set up some of the tents outside the emergency rooms when they started to get nervous that there were so many people coming in with COVID symptoms and such they needed to to set up temporary facilities to try to take care of them and we see we've seen that before in the in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds with the with the pandemic then the the flu the Spanish flu pandemic there was just these emergency moments where we set up specialty why aren't drive-thrus? we treating they even had drive throughs right why aren't we treating this with the same urgency that we treated the pandemic. I mean, why aren't we actually putting up temporary facilities, tents or other places where people can go? If we truly see this as the emergency that we all do, if we are so concerned about people getting off the streets, getting the help that they need, why aren't there, why isn't there a discussion about something more broad, more urgent and more temporary and just triaging that situation to the point where we could we could serve people more easily and more quickly if there were these available. It just feels like we're treating it the same way we treat the housing crisis, where it's just like, well, in ten years they'll be able to build this facility. Where like, no, we need something now. We need we need emergency movement now. Scott, it sounds kind of like you're FEMA pilled right now. I I am FEMA pilled. <laughs> we should be treating it the way that FEMA <laughs> treats these emergencies, right? It it, was, it should be very much like that. We should have every available uh, parking garage, every available parking lot, every available uh, gym or or warehouse where you could you could have people go and get the treatment that they need if they're interested in getting off these drugs. Otherwise, we're just we're not doing anything. We're not going to ever see any improvement on this at this rate. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the the big issues here is is trying to scream from the rooftops these these harsh realities 72 freaking beds in the county because there are so many folks who not only view homeless folks but addicts as these sort of people with you know deep and incurable moral failings when the reality is that's just not the case and and it's it is very very discouraging to try to have conversations about these things to write detailed research driven um, pieces that communicate the humanity of these folks and, and go onto a website and see somebody just say, throw them all in, in prison. And, and it really does, I, I think, highlight the degree to which people have just stopped caring about their fellow humans. And that is a deeply, deeply troubling reality. Well, but I, I don't think that we, that, that, that we, until we figure that out, I don't think that we see the sort of... I think they have to. Because otherwise, how do you look at what's happening everywhere in San Diego and live with it, if not by assuming that somehow those people chose and deserve it? Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the only way I think some people can function is if they make the assumption that they've made that choice, they've chosen a dark path, they deserve in some ways to suffer for it, they just need to be out of my way. But that also sounds like one of the potentially most depressing realities. Sure. I mean, that that is like a level of rationalization that is just frightening. <laughs> to your earlier point um, or her point where she talked about, you know, how their substance use problems got worse or, you know, possibly even started. Um, so Lisa also led another panel um, called What It's Like Being Homeless. And in that panel, uh, she had Natalie Rashke, who Lisa has written about, uh, the woman who had her family living in an RV and then their RV got towed. Um, and Natalie has shared this moment where 
she was talking about how low she felt and how low it was to be in this position and how she thinks, you know, people make assumptions about homeless people and having to like reckon with the reality that like people are making those assumptions about her family or her kids. Um, but she said like, if I did not have my family, like I would be in a very different position because you get so low, so, so low that you just like want to end it all and you don't care what you do. Like you just want to like not, not feel things. And it was her family that kept her, you know, away from those sorts of thoughts because like, she had to she had a purpose she had a purpose and you know she's like but i understand why you know why so many people just end up in these like horrible situations and so that was really eye-opening i think for a lot of people in that crowd well also in that panel one of the panelists uh, vic talked about his experience with the police he said he'd, he'd, he'd been in jail what he said 30 times yeah and he was reflecting what it's like to to be involved with all these sweeps and abatement efforts that always happen. There was a big question about this, and I think a fascinating moment at the end of PolitiFest where Attorney General Rob Bonta was up and he he ended a great discussion with Liam Dillon from the LA Times about housing law and enforcement in different cities. He broke some news about a potential settlement with Coronado and the city of Coronado and its housing targets and its its sort of its disregard for the state's laws about housing and and their efforts to come to an agreement with the city. And he indicated that they had uh, and that there would be some progress with that going forward, which was some news. But before it was all over, I asked him if he could shed light on this issue. So we have a really interesting thing happening right now. There was a law or a there was a court case in 2018 Martin versus Boise. And in that case, basically, a federal court ruled that you cannot punish people for being homeless if there's no place for them to go, if there's no shelter for them to be at. And that had a profound impact on cities across the United States because they were no longer able to sort of push people along or encourage them to leave certain areas if they didn't have actual places for them to go. And so that was a big deal. And now there's been a new case. The Supreme Court, by the way, did not hear that um, that case. There's been now a new case called Grants Pass. And that took the ruling further and said, you cannot even fine people. You can't, there can't be any kind of these, these uh, ticketing or anything like that if you, if there's no place for them to go. Now, the really interesting thing now is that Governor Gavin Newsom and now a bunch of cities, including the city of San Diego, uh, San Francisco, the county DA of this, of San Diego, all of these places, dozens of people and, and entities and governments are joining to, to say like the Supreme Court needs to take up this case because they want clarity on what that means. What can they do? to push people along or encourage them to move on or otherwise, you know, punish them if they don't leave certain areas. Newsom blamed the judge for for a lot of the problems going on in these cities and was really reflecting some of the anger that people have about the encampments. So we asked, I asked uh, the attorney general if he thought that the Supreme Court should take that case and whether it was legal to enforce some of these camping bans and, and encampment bans. And here's his answer. I'll, I'll be honest. When, when Martin came down, I was a little surprised that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment was being used in this context and in this way. I, I think that a ruling, I, I, think, I think Martin versus Boise needs clarification. Um, I think some people think that it means that until you have a plan for every single homeless person in a jurisdiction, San Francisco, let's say, you can't um, move one of them off the street. I think that's wrong. I think you can move any single individual off the street and into housing, and that complies with the Martin versus Boise uh, requirement. And you don't have to have a plan for everybody. It shouldn't be that because you don't have a plan for everybody, you can't help anybody. You should be able to help individuals and move neighborhood by neighborhood as long as you're fulfilling your duty to provide them uh, with a compassionate uh, shelter opportunity. That was pretty straightforward. He's saying, yeah, you, you should be able to, to push people along. But then I think there was a great follow-up suggested to me, and I asked it about 
well, what is suitable shelter? What should be, what do, what do you have to provide in order to be able to, to, to force somebody along if they're not willing to move from their encampments? And this is what he said. You need to address and confront the unique circumstances of the individual and do your best. I mean, we could go down this rabbit hole where we're talking about 10,000 different requirements and then it becomes impractical. We need to be practical. We need to be common sense. At some point, the offer will have to be enough, even though it's not everything under the sky that's being asked for. I think the two answers he just had there reflect just how confusing this whole thing is. Because on the one hand, he's saying, yes, cities should be able to push people out of where they're encamped if there's suitable shelter. You can't just choose not to go to the shelter. And he also says, yeah, you, you, you shouldn't have to have, have to make a plan for every single homeless person to, before you enforce those laws. But then he also says, like, you, to provide this shelter, it has to be unique to almost every person available. It has to make sure they have a dog, you take care of that, or, you know, a, uh, a disability or, or other circumstance. You might need to tailor it to that. And so it just shows just how complex that is when you say there has to be a place for you to go. What does that place really mean? And that is the core question. And a lot of people that are asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on this, I think, want the Supreme Court to provide the exact definition. And I don't think they're going to do it. I think all they're going to do is throw out the Boise law and just say like, or the precedent and say like, you know, that's no longer the precedent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're going to give you a very clear answer about what exactly you have to provide in order to move people along. I think they're just going to make it even more confusing. I don't think anybody looking for the Supreme Court to clarify this is going to be satisfied. And yet they all are. The governor, several cities in, in Orange County, the city of San Diego now, city of Seattle, San Francisco, uh, the DAs, all these peaceful people want clarity. I even read the DAs uh, whole thing about this. The DA sent in an amicus brief. And the whole thing is just a description of how bad homelessness and encampments are. And at the very end just says like, we need clarification on what we're allowed to do. There's nothing in there about like why the law is so confusing that they're, what are they not allowed to do that, that is holding them back? Uh, I mean, do you think that these entities are asking for clarification from the Supreme Court in good faith? Or is this just them hoping to be able to to move people along again. They insist that they are like Gavin Newsom. Every time he's asked, or in his statements, when they ask, like, "Are you trying to?" You do realize you might just throw this law out, and he's like, "No, we just want clarification. We don't want to throw out the precedent." Sure, but I mean, isn't that somebody who's acting in bad faith? Isn't that what they would say? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm acting in good faith. I mean, I guess uh, I think that they everybody needs to recognize that that's probably what they're going to do is, yeah. is throw out the law. And then I, I guess I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, and and I think it'll be really interesting to see if all these cities are unleashed and can do whatever they want to do to mm -hmm. do enforcement. I think that'll be very interesting to see what their city councils and other things agree uh, agree to do to mitigate that or not, and and that's where we're at. But that case, the Supreme Court has not agreed to take it. And we'll see what they decide to do. Yeah, I think so. Lisa followed up with uh, Bonta afterwards. And, you know, he didn't go as far as to say, like, you know, I don't want the Supreme Court to hear this case. But he did make some like points on like his concerns with the Supreme Court, so with the Supreme Court looking at this case, especially the specific Supreme Court. Um, this is a quote Lisa included in her story that's out today on VSD.org. Uh, he said, they're expressing themselves, but I don't want us to move the pendulum too far the other way. We cannot make being homeless criminal and be punitive and be inhumane about it. We must always maintain our humanity and compassion and provide opportunities for shelter for those on the street. I mean, again, it doesn't really help with the legal question of what cities are allowed to do or what he thinks they should be allowed to do, right? Mm -hmm. he's, not, he's not providing that similar clarification. He could. He could right now say, like, I've read the Supreme Court, you know, cases from before. I've read the federal court cases and the many precedents leading up. And this is exactly what you are allowed to do. And this is what you're not allowed to do. And he's not doing that. And they're all waiting for this whatever, you know, clarification from on high. But I think I think they can do a lot and they are doing a lot. And they might be 
sued, and I'm sure a lot of them in the city of San Diego, all the city attorneys are probably preparing to get sued for what they're doing enforcement-wise right now with the camping ban. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that they're going to find a perfect answer to this. And I think it just serves as another excuse of why they can't address the problem, why you're not seeing an, uh, an improvement in the problem. And they can point to, well, the Supreme Court this or whatever. Yeah. I mean, this, it almost feels like a ask mom situation. Right. You know, <laughs> and that's what got, uh, what Gavin Newsom basically was saying. Like, this is, this is, this, these judges yeah. are part of the reason you're not seeing an improvement, which is a fascinating thing for a progressive person like him to do, I think. I mean, Todd Gloria kind of echoed some of that too. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's, it's, it's what they're all doing. The mayor of San Francisco, London Breed. Todd Gloria, everybody is on board with this. Uh, notably, Karen Bass, the mayor of LA, is not. So I'm not sure how that's going to go. Okay, so this brings up the sort of last thing we wanted to get into, which was uh, Sunbreak Ranch. So for years, George Mullen, uh, he's this kind of artist guy. He had this thing for a while. He wanted the city of San Diego to take on a new motto of the city of life. Uh, and he had a bunch of drawings about how that would look and feel. He's an, he's an artist, really? Yeah, and he's a business guy and service club type guy. He had this idea to create Sunbreak Ranch, and for a while it was it was the focus of it was we're going to build this giant ranch or camp camp <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere in the desert or near Otay Mesa or near Brownfield or whatever, and we're going to concentrate the homeless people out in this camp. Interesting, interesting word choice. Though. Yeah, <laughs> picked up on it, huh? <laughs> so the uh, the people would be uh, allowed to leave, uh, but they would be like there'd be tons of services. He said in one of his uh, op eds in January, he said it will be a creative, one of a kind location featuring thirty five plus amenities and benefits that strive to make the ranch the best possible temporary home for our homeless fellow citizens. And so they estimate the cost of this at $275 million. Now, this was something that they talked about, he talked about for years. And I think over the last about two years, year and a half or so, it's really started to gain traction. And in part, because he started to focus on one site in particular, Miramar. So Miramar Marine Corps Air Station is the site of a lot of dreams of San Diego. We, we dreamt for a long time of putting an airport there. Uh, that didn't work out. God, that would be nice. So it's where dreams go to die. Yes. Okay. Uh, the it's airport. where dreams go to be exploded by unexploded ordinance. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the Marine Corps, for instance, uh -huh. heavily opposed putting an airport there and did not want any part of that discussion. And coincidentally, it died a very ugly death at the ballot in 2006, I think that was. R.I.P. It was like, 70-30 or something. It was very poorly received by the San Diego voters. Anyway, the idea to put this giant facility on, I think, 500 acres of land is what they thought about in that Marine Corps Air Station was going forward. It started to get a lot of support from uh, Bill Walton, NBA legend, a lot of local philanthropists, Malin Burnham, Tom Sudbury. A lot of these guys said like, okay, this sounds good. We're, we're in. We, we'll you know, create a place where they can go. Now, I've always had a little bit of trouble with it, and, and I never really wanted to talk about it because it just it, it does have the feel of a concentration camp, right? Get people. But it says right here there are 35 plus amenities. Yes. You get what, people. What, what would count as an amenity? Is that like a water fountain? I, I think rec centers and yeah, <laughs> like, like doctors, clinics, uh, dentists, all kinds of stuff. And they would have all that out there. But yeah, it did feel like you were going to concentrate people in a camp far away. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel very good. Now, they'd say anytime you'd have an argument like that, they'd say, well, we're not going to require people to be there. But that brings up the question like, okay, well, what, why would they go there? They're not going to go even 12 miles away to this thing. And, it, it, you know, they want to, they're, they're people. They want to be around service. They want to be around jobs. They want to be around other people. Uh, they want to be around all libraries and parks. They want to be in cities. That's why they're there. And they're going to want to do that. What would keep them there? And they'd say, well, we're going to enforce 
more harshly even the rules that they cannot be encamped anywhere in San Diego. So that was how it sort of stood. But it started to build a lot more support. It started to get a lot more support when they focused on this area that was a little bit closer in Miramar. Well, two weeks ago, the Marine Corps commanding officer at Miramar Marine Corps Air Station sent a letter to the mayor basically saying, <laughs> you know, not here, that it has unexploded ordnance on the ground, that the firing arc of test ranges and firing ranges reaches into all these areas. In other words, a bullet could come out of nowhere at any time or some sort of missile or some sort of other uh, ammunition a missile could easily <laughs> come into the area and kill people who were at this camp. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in favor of the airport idea, but now that I know that there are just kind of missiles flying around, I, I, maybe it's not the best idea. Well, that I was wish one of he the... wrote it the way you just said it. That would have been much more compelling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he did, but no, not that I remember. That was one of the concerns that the Marine Corps brought up about the airport. They're like, you can't have these military uses here and an airport right next to it. Like there's just too many things going on. Wow, it suddenly got so much anxiety. <laughs> so <laughs> the other thing they pointed out that four planes had crashed in that area over the last More 20 anxiety. years. <laughs> and there were all these like wildlife uh, refugees, refuges. So there's the vernal pools and other things. There are protective areas for wildlife there. So and there's just like out, endangered animals getting shot randomly. <laughs> I know. There's salamanders thing. dodging, yes, landmines. <laughs> yes. 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 Other than that, it's great. <laughs> Other than that is a perfectly well-suited facility. That sounds like a side-scrolling game like Frogger. This was the first sort of official smackdown of the Sunbreak Ranch idea that has been offered. So the mayor has tried to like sort of placate them and just listen to them there's been no real opposition to them because it felt like a kind of fantasy idea on the side. Nobody's really pushed back on it until the Marine Corps was tapped to uh, provide this letter, and they did. Now, I got to say, the Sunbreak Ranch dudes have one thing right, and that was this idea of like a triage. Like There needs to be an emergency situation applied to this, that we need to pretend or not pretend, we need to accept that this is a catastrophe, not unlike a natural disaster, where there needs to be visible and urgent response to what's happening. You cannot live with the way it is out there right now. And they had that idea. And I think that's why they started to get support. Then they also said, well, but after we triage it, we'll, we'll push them out so you never have to see them again in this camp. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also been attractive to people because there's a lot of people who just don't want to see this. As, as we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. they are not interested in in the daily violence to their sense of conscience that this provides, right? This It's, it's a very uncomfortable thing to drive to your office and see people living the way they're living. And so I think there was a very, I think, you know, obvious motivation that they move them out and have them. And I think it also provided them a thing they could say. This is what you do. The guy running for mayor, Larry Turner, he's a cop downtown. He's he's running for mayor. And his primary plan for homelessness is this, Sunbreak Ranch. Put him out there. Get him out into the desert. And I think like that's, it's just this, it's become this like outlet. Well, what should we do? Well, we should do that. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate because I want all those guys to grapple with, yes, emergency. Yes, we need a place for people to go. But don't pretend like you can just put them out in a concentration camp in the desert. There needs to be other spots. There needs to be spots closer. And that brings up the last point. We're hearing a lot more about H barracks. You know H barracks. Yeah. So this is the area right next to the you know, airport. It's my, it's my spot for it's hanging your, out. It's your spot. <laughs> uh, if you drive by the airport, there's all these like rundown, like it looks like a rundown, war torn like area, right? Yeah, of yeah. of like uh, urban area. Well, that's where the firefighters practice a lot of their work. Uh, that Fire is your stuff. Right. That is the site of the future of pure water water recycling facility. And 
the idea is to bulldoze uh, much of the buildings. The fire training site would still be there. Um, get that ready for the pure water facility that's going to be there in in future years. But in the meantime, let people safe camp, safe park, and have congregate shelters, uh, tents there that could you know potentially provide a spot for hundreds, if not a thousand people. It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they asked, like, well, what about like that spot for your ranch? And they're like, no, 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 it's too close to Point Loma. <laughs> I think that like it it gets back to this spot. Are we going it's actually to- really far? Driving is close to Point Loma. Yeah, I mean, you walked there. That'd be a hell of a walk. It would be a you have to cross water. Yeah, it, with there's bridges, but yeah, I mean. <laughs> And there's there are homeless people. I'm, I hate to say it. There are people who are unsheltered in on the peninsula. There's a, there's a few. But that's the the question going forward. Are there more of these kinds of things that we can do? Create that urgency, and 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 provide places for people to go, or are we going to let people continue to offer like this concentration camp idea on the side? Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately those kinds of ideas are what pop up when there's just absolutely no urgency or creativity to to solve this most pressing of problems. Right. Or it's not visible enough that if there is, right, that it's not obvious that the city's doing a tremendous amount to alleviate what everybody agrees is the biggest crisis. All right. Well, that's my rant for the day. Appreciate it, you guys. Yeah, I think I, I think you owe us like a therapist fee or something. <laughs> We're not better help. We're like moderate help. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. That was good. Uh, other duties is assigned. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, you can check out all the discussions at PolitiFest. And I just want to give a shout out to the volunteers. We had a ton of students from the Price Fellows and La Jolla Country Day and just a lot of volunteers, podcast listeners. I saw a lot of you there. It was great to see you all. Thank Thanks you all. Thanks for listening to us on your runs. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, there, people have a, an intimate relationship, I think, with the podcast because we're right in your ears every week, and it just means a lot that you came out and saw us. And thanks to all the members who support us, all the sponsors there, too. You can check out all of the conversations at PolitiFest at politifest.org. Thanks for listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Thank you to all who attended PolitiFest 2023. If you missed it or if you want to relive the magic, you can watch panels and read transcripts and more at politifest.org. We'll be updating that page with new videos, reports, and transcripts as we process all of the great discussions that we hosted. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is Managing Editor. Jacob McQueen is our Education Reporter. Nate Johns, our Producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.